0: This is a Macquarie Group Podcast.
1: So hello and welcome to Macquarie's Perspectives Podcast, where our diverse team of experts and invited special guests share their latest thinking on current and emerging topics. So I'm your host, Laura, and today we're turning our attention to infrastructure, specifically in the US. Now, like most nations, an interconnected network of physical infrastructure really underpins the US economy, and this includes everything from roads and rail networks, water and power utilities, digital communication systems, school hospitals, and I could mention many more. Now, these infrastructure networks have come under the spotlight due to the significant gap that exists between the capital that's available to fund infrastructure and what's actually needed to do that. So this, along with President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan, has placed the need to bridge that infrastructure gap firmly on the agenda. So I'm joined by two guests today to discuss the challenges and opportunities that come with this and the role that private capital has to play. So John Picaver is Head of Infrastructure and Energy Capital with Macquarie Capital in the Americas, and Carl Cashel, who's Head of Infrastructure for Macquarie Asset Management's Real Asset Business here in the Americas. So, you might not be able to tell from their accents, but both John and Carl are located in the US and are joining me today from New York. Hi, John. Hi, Carl. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Hi. Hello. So,
1: So Carl, if I could start with you, um, how did this focus on infrastructure from both a public and private perspective come about in
2: the US? Yeah, so obviously, infrastructure is central to the operation of any economy. And, um, you know, when we talk about Uh, economic growth and supporting economic growth. Infrastructure is is central to that. And then you put that in the context of the US. Uh, The US is the world's largest economy. A huge amount of infrastructure was invested in 50, 60 years ago, post-World War II. That's all aging. It's been underinvested in. So there's this huge opportunity to really invest in these types of infrastructure to maintain uh, grade, but also expand capacity. And then you've got you know, some real structural trends around things like energy transition and digital that provide additional opportunities to invest in infrastructure like fibre and data centres, for example.
1: So it sounds like there's a huge amount to do. And I think turning to you, John, it's probably fair to say that traditionally, the US has really looked to the public sector to fund and manage this critical infrastructure, and over time, obviously, it's made it challenging for investment to keep pace with what's actually needed to upgrade and renew um, the infrastructure that is here. So can you talk to us a bit about the role that's emerged for private capital and how that can work with the public
0: sector in sort of trying to solve this problem? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question in the sense that traditionally, as you say, infrastructure, the capital cost, the CapEx, to build the infrastructure in the first place has been funded by government. And then the ongoing maintenance on operation of those assets, whether it's a road, an airport or utility, has again been funded by government out of ongoing budgets. And as Carl said, a lot of the infrastructure in the US was built in the 50s and 60s, and so that maintenance cycle is where a lot of that infrastructure is now, all being funded by government. I guess a reminder that the private infrastructure investment opportunity is where the private sector invests the capex up front raise the finance we build the assets and we ongoing we maintain on an ongoing basis mm. over the life of that asset so that in return for that uh, you know the private sector has access to either the revenues from that asset and airport landing charges for example a toll road the tolls that the cars might pay and so the community gets the benefit of That infrastructure. Be it travel, transport, health, education, um, power, water, the public sector has not had to fund the CAPEX or the ongoing maintenance and operations. The public community still gets the benefit of that infrastructure. Um, The public sector, the government has to facilitate that through legislation and through the frameworks that allow the private sector to invest. And so the public sector's role and the private sector's role in that private infrastructure. Uh, development and operations is is slightly different. The fundamental thing, though, is that the communities get that infrastructure. People are able to use it. The services are provided, um, but it's provided uh, with a private financing and private operation and maintenance lens.
1: You sort of don't think about it every day, but the amount of infrastructure you use, even just to get out of bed in the morning and go to work, is actually huge. So the scale of what needs to happen here is really quite enormous. And I guess that leads to a couple of questions Firstly, John, what are the challenges that you see in actually addressing this issue effectively? And, and Carl, um, what's the benefit to investors that you work with in actually putting their capital to work on some of these projects? Maybe we start with you, John, around mm. what the challenges are and how we're sort of going about those.
0: Well, a couple of challenges in the US market. The need for investment in the infrastructure uh, because it is ageing, largely is very large. So there's a there's a large task that's required. Uh, the that balance sheets of the government's state municipalities and federal level are stretched particularly post-COVID and so the availability of the government capital to support that uh, is limited there's also a challenge in the us in particular where uh, the knowledge of private financing and the understanding of for example the p3 model which is the public private partnership model Uh, is not as uh, extensive amongst government procurers of infrastructure as it is in other markets, for example, Canada, New Zealand, Australia and the UK, Uh, and also across Europe in the sense that the model where you can bring that private finance together with the community, need, uh, the private sector to to build it and then to own and operate it uh, is less well understood. So one of the challenges we actually face is educating governments and educating procuring authorities Uh, about the model and what actually can be done. Um, There are so many governments also in the US in the sense that the different levels of government and the authorities responsible for that infrastructure are many and varied. There's not a central agency or within each state, there's not a central state agency. Some states have a P3 office. Those ones tend to be a little ahead of the other states in their understanding and therefore implementation of public financing models. So we're working with all of those challenges looking to develop the projects that we are from a quarry point of view.
1: And just to take it back to basics, what is the P3 model and what do you need to make it work?
0: So you need legislation from the government that says we're going to procure a bridge, for example, and we're going to use a P3 model, which involves tendering to, um, saying to the market, soliciting tenders from the market, uh, where the tenderer comes with not only uh, the design and then the construction of the bridge, but the financing as well. So it's a public-private partnership where the financing is provided by the private sector as part of the tender. So the cost of the infrastructure is paid for by the private bidder. Uh, and in return for that, there is a concession or the ability for that developer um, to develop or own the asset for a, a certain period of time. Uh, and so the partnership is it's a public asset that's privately financed and at the end, typically at the end of the concession, the asset reverts to public hand. So at the end of the day, it becomes a public asset. But the partnership in the middle is where the, uh, the financing and the government come together to be able to deliver the asset. So there's
1: benefits to be had on, on all sides of that,
0: again? Benefits on all sides. And, and some of the benefits are risk transfer. So now the government is transferring the risk of financing, paying for the asset to the private sector. There's risk transfer around if you're responsible for the operations and maintenance of it, after you've built it, you built it, you're maintaining it, uh, and you're responsible therefore for maintaining what you built. So the risk transfer in that circumstance is a very powerful one, particularly here in the market. Uh, And then you know it transfers back to the public sector at the end.
1: So Carl, what about the institutional investors that you work with? Where's the benefit and how do they get involved in this sort of in meeting this this
2: need? Yeah so I think on the private investment side infrastructure is still a relatively new sub class uh, for investment you've obviously had private equity you've had real estate and other classes for decades infrastructure is newer newer as an investable class but it's clearly attractive you know we've seen you know larger and larger allocations coming through from institutional investors to invest in infrastructure and it just comes back to what's the essence of an infrastructure asset they deliver essential services to customers uh, they're needed through all cycles that means you're seeing generally stable performance through the cycle. You see in, in, in elasticity to price increases. Uh, you generally see uh, yield coming out to investors over time. And that, uh, combined with an inflation pitch, that's obviously really topical uh, at the moment given the, the macro environment. A lot of investors see those characteristics, uh, see them as attractive in their own right, but they also act as a diversifier to some of the other investments in their portfolios certainly to a standard stock uh, stock bond portfolio, uh, for example. Um, in MAM, we've been managing capital on behalf of institutional investors in infrastructure for uh, almost 30 years now, over 20 years here in the US. And so we built up a lot of experience managing these investments, but I think that puts us in a pretty unique position to then you know, provide that firsthand knowledge to investors around you know, why infrastructure makes sense uh, in, uh, in their portfolios. And so when you think of the investors that are most interested in investing uh, in, uh, in infrastructure, it's really three categories. Pension funds, which can be public, corporate or union pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, but also insurance companies. And you think about what type of investors or, or clients they are at their core, they have long-term uh, obligations. That can be paying out pensions or policy holders. And so infrastructure is a great match, long-lived assets, steady performance to actually match against those uh, the, those obligations. But I think, you know, if you then look underneath that, you know, those clients, then represent those retirees, those members, uh, those policyholders that rely on the returns that we deliver. Uh, and, and that's always, you know, front of mind for us. Uh, is is the fact that you know we're involved in delivering returns for those underlying clients? That's a, a critical part of what we do. Yeah. It's
1: interesting you said that infrastructure is a relatively newer asset class for investors to be thinking about. But even within infrastructure, there's newer asset classes still. Right, so the digital infrastructure space, for example, has been something really quite recent to add to that to that mix. How are you thinking about things like digital infrastructure? And how do you talk about it to investors who are thinking about it as an infrastructure asset?
2: Yeah, like as I, as I said earlier, there are really two two key structural thematics going going through the infrastructure sector on the investment side energy transition and digital uh, and you would have many large institutional investors even five years ago that didn't have any digital infrastructure in their portfolio now it wouldn't be uncommon to have on a look-through basis you know a quarter or even more of their portfolios uh, in uh, in digital. Um, Once again, we're pretty uniquely positioned. We made our first digital infrastructure investment here in the US back in 2007, which is actually before the first iPhone came out. So, you know, to put it in context, we've been doing this a a long time. But, you know, when you think about that, really, the ramp up of investment in this sector, it's been driven by the demand, which is really, I think, a key component for, for infrastructure investing is, You really like to see a genuine need for the service that the infrastructure provides we're all consuming more and more data every single day Uh, you know there's clear clear movement to the cloud for example so if you just think about compute power moving data and consuming data that requires infrastructure all the way along in order to deliver that so you've got things like carrier hotels data centers fiber networks cell phone towers all of those provide investable opportunities uh, for, for investors that really weren't from the mind, uh, you know, years or, or decades ago, but are, are now really very much front and center. It's
1: really about trying to find that unmet community and matching it with the capital that you can sort of funnel through. Sure. Um, it'd be really good to bring it to life as some examples, though, um, John. And I know um, Macquarie Capital, well, both Macquarie Capital and Macquarie Asset Management, are really active in terms of projects. Could you give us some examples and talk about a bit of their impact on maybe a couple of them? Mm,
0: yeah, certainly. So, probably the one that's been most well known in our portfolio is a P3 project that we hit financial close on in December last year. It's a Pennsylvania project. It's a bridges project in in Pennsylvania uh, and procured under a P3 model, $2.4 billion of of capex uh, across six bridges that we are upgrading and then maintaining over a concession life beyond the upgrade. So a very important project. Pennsylvania, as a lot of the states in the northeast, has a lot of old bridges built in the 50s and 60s, and those bridges are Um, facing a lot of challenges, structural challenges, because of the lack of maintenance over time. So they're not new bridges. It's not a new community need, but the community needs the upgrade and maintenance of those those bridges. So we bid that project over about the year or so before we got to to financial close, Um, and the challenges there were working in a state that knew about P3s, had procured P3s before, had a P3 office, Um, but um, in an environment where, uh, the sort of the changing election cycles and so on, sort of changeovers of personalities, changeovers of, of people and the procuring method, and there was actually a legal challenge to the project. Um, towards the end of the project where it was going to be a toll arrangement, uh, there was a legal challenge to that methodology. Uh, the state and the P3 office in Pennsylvania had pivoted very quickly to say, well, we'll make it an availability payment, which means the state pays the concessionaire directly. Uh, and there's no tolls on those. Bridges as they go through. So, they did a very good job in maintaining the the project uh, in the face of of some of those changes, which was great to see. Um, And we're really pleased with it in the sense that it's a project that those six bridges are the first package of two. So, we're now working on our proposal for the last three bridges to make a total of nine bridges that we'll be upgrading and maintaining across Pennsylvania. So, classic economic infrastructure. Um, needed for the transport net, network uh, and a very high-profile example given the size of the project and the dollars involved.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure as a member of the community you wouldn't think about the need to maintain things like bridges, but they you know, they definitely know about it if it wasn't there and they weren't able to, to do what they needed to do in terms of transport. Um, Carl, as well for you, interested in some of your examples and especially how MAM is sort of leveraging its global network of expertise and sort of transferring that expertise and bringing it, I guess, to the US market.
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question because we're a large global platform, but then we have local investment teams that are sited are in each of, the, each of the regions. So I think there's probably three worth, worth talking about. First is picking up on the digital thematic from earlier. The first data centre investment we made globally was here in the US, uh, but what you, you note is that the major customers for hyperscale data centres are, in fact, global. So as we've then gone on and invested in data centre platforms in Asia, PAC and Europe, I think we've been able to take a a global approach and really share learnings and key relationships with those global customers. Uh, A second one, uh, I think we have a really unique uh, waste sector franchise here in the US. We've been investing in waste infrastructure for more than 15 years. I mean, just our operations today, we operate in almost 20 US states. Um, We're really focused on the processing and disposal of waste. And, you know, just in the last couple of years, we've made our first investments in waste infrastructure in both, once again, Asia-Pac and Europe. We've really been able to leverage all of that experience and all those learnings uh, into those those investments. And then I think the last one uh, to note is, uh, you know, we're the the largest owner of port terminals here in the US. uh, And that means we have great relationships with the major shipping lines, uh, which are also global in nature. And so we have, you know, the investments here, but we obviously import port investments elsewhere in the world, uh, and that allows us to, to not only share things like best practices around things like technology and equipment, but also how we interface with those global shipping line relationships.
1: Yeah, and, and these are really essential, essential services that you're providing to the community. And I, I wanted to ask you just to close around the responsibility that comes with that and how you sort of think about that as a business.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the first point to note is, The primary and our first responsibility is our fiduciary duty to our investors. So we are always focused on delivering those returns uh, that we promise to our investors to them over time in line with the agreement that we struck with our investors. But the overlay or part of that is that we do it in a responsible way. And a big part of that is managing our key stakeholders. And so a lot of people naturally jump straight to customers or the users of the infrastructure and make sure that they have a good experience. And that's certainly part of it. But the stakeholder map is much broader than that. It can include politicians, regulators, other community groups, but then also uh, employees, for example. So to give you an idea of the scale of our global platform, I mean, today we have about 280 million people that we estimate use our infrastructure assets around, around the world every year. But then every single day, we have about 260,000 staff and contractors that go to work in our businesses every day. And if you think about that, you know, that just brings to the fore the need for a focus on things like health and safety. So that all of our workers that go to work they get to go home to their families safe. So you have those sort of considerations in managing these uh, these portfolio companies.
1: And John, do you think about it in a similar way capital?
2: We do, and you started out with it in the sense of all of the
0: infrastructure you use in your daily life from getting up and you're travelling through the day and all the things that you're doing, you're making phone calls, you're, um, uh, you're moving around the economy, you're buying things and selling things. It's all supported by that infrastructure. So the service provision element of the infrastructure to the community I think is really important. Because we're the development piece and we get to build new infrastructure, um, we also get to focus on the community benefit of the jobs during the construction phase, the training and the other community programs that can come with a construction project because construction comes and goes. but Then you've obviously got the ongoing business element that Carl's talking about, um, the ownership of those, the maintenance on an ongoing basis. So when you put the construction and the development side in the Macquarie Capital, got with the ongoing ownership, custodianship on the, on the asset management side. I think we get a really nice blend of those community benefits uh, from the creation of the assets into you know, their service view. I really like this connection between the private
1: capital the public capital and just this, this public good that comes out of bringing those two together. So it sounds like you've got some really exciting things underway. Thank you so much for joining me and both of you. Um, we're really pleased to have had
0: you. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. You can learn more about our infrastructure projects on macquarie.com.
0: Thank you for listening to this Macquarie Group podcast. All episode disclaimers can be found in the show notes.